the Isle of Man general election 2021 coverage on Manx Radio. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We're live at the old Granville Hotel, what is now Jack's on Douglas Promenade, to talk to the candidates in Douglas East. Now, Douglas, the capital of the Isle of Man, the main business centre of the island, is the modern home to the island's parliament, located in the legislative buildings on Bucks Road. The boundaries of Douglas East include the districts of Crescent, Derby, Strand, Victoria and Windsor, plus St Dinians from the old Douglas North constituency, and finally, the length of Douglas Promenade. Now, before House of Keys was dissolved on the 12th of August, the two MHKs were Claire Barber and Chris Robertshaw. And standing in alphabetical order, Claire Barber, Joni Farragher, Peter Gilmore, Michael Josem, John Jockin, Christine Urquhart and Amanda Walker. So let's go to the candidates first of all. Joni Farragher, why do you want to become MHK for Douglas East? Well, I think that there are um, lots of challenges ahead and I want to make positive difference. I've been involved with politics for, well, most of my life really to varying degrees and I've become more engaged in the last decade. I feel at the time is right, uh, both in terms of myself as a person, uh, in being the right person, and in terms of political scene on the Isle of Man to take this step. Amanda Walker. Um, I stood at the last election and I've stood twice for council. Um, I've had a lifelong interest in politics, have a degree in politics. I've lived in Douglas East for 21 years. Um, I have raised my children here, gone to the schools in Douglas East. Um, obviously, I'm a homeowner, so I'm very aware of all the issues that we face in Douglas East. And I think there's a huge amount of challenge in the next five years, not least Brexit, which I think has not actually been fully addressed yet because I think it has been largely masked by the COVID crisis and the climate emergency, which I think is urgently needs addressing. John Jockin. Uh, yeah, well, I've had a long uh, career of public service. Uh, when I was in the post office, I was the branch secretary of the Postman's Union for nearly 20 years. I've been a town councillor for eight years, I've been the mayor of Douglas for three years and uh, what I'd like to do is uh, be the, the MHK for Douglas East and step up. Michael Josem. Our campaign for Douglas East is about three key things but more than anything else it's based on the idea that we need someone who will be our voice to the government instead of the government, government's voice to us. And those three key things are first of all to ease a squeeze on the cost of living, especially uh, addressing the, the housing crisis. Second of all, uh, to, as we rebuild from the pandemic, to address the, the shadow pandemic of, of the mental health crisis. Uh, and third of all, um, is about holding the senior government officials account uh, you know, over projects such as the Douglas Prom out the front here, the Liverpool landing stage, the water slide and at the NSC and so on. Claire Barber. So I think over the last five years, I've certainly sought to hold government to account. I've always said I wouldn't stand again if I didn't feel that I had something more to offer. And there's certainly projects that I've started with um, in terms of the sex offences legislation. We've seen the domestic abuse legislation and the secondary legislation that will now need to come through that I'm really passionate to get right. Um, but also to see the evolution of uh, Central Project Unit. Um, we're absolutely uh, in the middle of the heart of the promenade. Um, and having been part of the uh, scrutiny team that wrote three reports into the failings of the promenade, I'd like to see the uh, cap capital projects unit through to its evolution. Peter Gilmore. Um, I'm Banks with four generations of uh, family living and born on the Isle of Man. I spent nine years in the Royal Air Force and 25 years since then working in finance, business and technology. My uh, priorities are the Manx economy and diversification. I think we've only scratched the surface of the digital economy. We've got far more to do that. I work full time in the digital economy and I think we need 
MHKs that understand business, finance and technology. Christine Urquhart. I am standing as an MHK through sheer frustration. Frustration at a government that doesn't seem to care or listen. Frustration at policy that doesn't seem fit for purpose, doesn't fit for all. And, and frustration as a working class person, a working class resident and citizen of this island who just don't feel that they're being heard, the lack of transparency, the lack of accountability. I hope to bring that into government. Okay, uh, Amanda Walker, first of all, what would be your main priority if you became an MHK? I think it's very difficult to identify just one priority, but I think the overarching priority has got to be addressing the climate emergency, and the economy also needs addressing, but those two are not separate. They are absolutely interdependent and interlinked, and I think within the economy, we've also got to be aware of um, education and healthcare, and we've got to make sure that we address the mental health crisis that is very clearly part of the impact of the COVID epidemic. Uh, Joni Farragher, how important do you think the climate uh, emergency is? very important. It's certainly one of the top priorities on the doorstep. Um, there are several quite easy um, fixes that we can make to cut our carbon emissions, but really we need to be following Professor Curran's impact report um, in order to achieve net zero by earlier, earlier than 2050, I would say, but yeah, definitely. John Jockin, are you getting the climate emergency on the doorstep? I've known about the climate emergency for 20 years. What really annoys me is that the government hasn't done anything for 20 years. The last thing was the Solby Dam, and the one before that was the uh, energy from waste plants. Orkney is completely and utterly self-sufficient. They're making so much electricity, they're turning the electricity into nitrogen to run their vessels on. We can do it if there's the will to do it. But what we do need to know is find the money where to get it from. We won't get subsidies like the rest of UK. We don't get subsidies from Europe. We'll have to pay for it ourselves, and it's going to be very expensive. Uh, Peter Gilmore, uh, the climate emergency, the climate crisis, how important do you think that is? I think it's very important. Um, but I think it's more important that we spend uh, any money on it cost-effectively. Uh, we need to remember it's a net target. We may be a small part of global warming, but we still have to do our bit. We've got plenty of uh, natural resources we need to use. But we need to think outside the box a little bit, I think. We uh, have a lot of international development money which we send abroad. We should be helping to support rainforests and indigenous peoples, for example, where we can offset at least 10 times our own emissions which are now reduced already, they've been updated this last week, from uh, 0.84 metric tons down to 0.5. So things are going well in it for us. Christine Oker? I can't hear you, I'm sorry, I do apologise. The climate, uh, the climate crisis, the climate emergency. What do I think of the climate crisis? Up on the I will be honest with you, I haven't learned enough about it, I am still learning about it. I've been so focused on people and the systems and, and, and service provision with what I've been doing for the past five years. I haven't learned enough about climate change. What I do know is that it needs to be thought through thoroughly. I agree with Peter, expenditure. Expenditure needs to be done wisely. They can't hear you out there. And there is a concern with regards to electric cars filling the island and what we do with those batteries etc that was mentioned previously. Okay, Michael Joseph. Yeah, so that's what we think. We think that climate change is a big problem and that's why Liberal Vanity is the only political party on the Isle of Man to be biased for your partners. We think we can do better than the government's target of reaching net zero carbon emissions by 2050. Um, and first of all we want to prohibit fossil fuel extraction on the Isle of Man and in our waters and to empower Manx households to have the right to obtain zero carbon emission electricity as part of their normal supply. Do you think that the gas exploration should go ahead? No. At all? 
Absolutely not. Our, our policy is very clear that we want to prohibit fossil fuel extraction on the land of the Isle of Man and in the surrounding waters. And this is for Liberal Vannon. This is, yeah, this is 100 percent. It's very clear policy. And Claire Barber. So I, I think the climate uh, emergency is absolutely uh, something that we need to, to focus on and we need to look at that across all areas of government. So that needs to be across transport, it needs to be across properties, it needs to be across waste. Um, but we also need to make sure we're looking at things like the sewage outlets um, in Peel. It's absolutely not appropriate in Peel and Laxey. We still have our children swimming in beaches that are not fit uh, fit for humans um, and we have an A4 sign at the side I, I reported on this this was something we did actually very early on in the uh, administration in the Environment and Infrastructure Policy Review Committee and I've been frustrated that we haven't seen the progress that we need to in resolving those very key issues okay let's talk about Douglas Promenade um, Peter Gilmore uh, Douglas East is right across the uh, Douglas Promenade what do you think as a new MHK you would do get bad publicity so I think the training should be begin within and there should be a, a whole cultural change with it in the DOI that needs to happen um, what do you think of Douglas Promenade John Jockin uh, it's accountability really they need to be held accountable for what they did to the people down here the business it was always going here. to be a big project we knew it was going to be a big project everybody knew it was going to be two and a half years uh, I mean, what, what really annoys me about the project is that uh, biggest project in Douglas East for 100 years, not a single Douglas East MHK involved in it. So like they scrutinised afterwards, but they weren't involved in it. Not a single Douglas MHK was yeah. involved in the whole project. OK, uh, Amanda Walk. I think it was very obvious from the start that it was going to be a very difficult project. Nine out of ten major projects run over budget and don't go to their timeline. That was all compounded by the COVID crisis, which clearly had an impact. Um, I think, and I said when I stood in 2016, that I think we should have had a major UK contractor over to um, map the whole prom so we didn't have the multiple diggings up and all of the problems that we had. I think there were some serious um, engineering and logistical errors made. Um, I think the huge impact on the businesses on the prom is some Thing that has to be looked at because we've given we've given proper compensation for people impacted by COVID. I'm not so sure that we've given proper compensation for the businesses impacted by the prom debacle. Joni Farragher. So I do think from conversations on the doorstep that this has been a sense of, there's a sense of genuine frustration at the lack of accountability and transparency, and um, that I think that people do want to see some of that accountability built in. So I have actually said that if elected, I think that we need to have it. An inquiry into what's happened. Now I know people do become a little bit weary of long-winded inquiries don't seem to actually go anywhere but I would like to use this one to provide genuine accountability and, you and transparency. Think an inquiry would, would help? Yeah, I do because I do think that there's such a sense of frustration out there that it needs to be addressed. I think that it also needs to inbuild into how we um, conduct capital projects in the future because it's just not acceptable what's happened here. Claire Barber. Mm -hmm. 
certainly uh, would push back against John saying that happened after the event. That actually has happened throughout the process of the promenade, and we have pushed for some significant changes, including getting the business manager, manager in place. Um, in terms of a liaison, that has been a very positive change. Um, I've spent many hours, and I've been humbled by the stories that I've been told by those people who've got businesses and properties on the promenade and um, who are absolutely at their wits' end. And we have to remember, it's not just the potential loss of business. Some of these people have got their own private properties, mortgage, you know, the mortgage on their, their property on the promenade is secured against their private property. The, the devastation to these people is absolutely unforgivable in terms of how they were initially handled in this project. Uh, Michael Joseph, what do you think we can do about Douglas Promenade? So look, at this stage, we, we're, we're very late in the game now, and so hopefully well, this should be finished in, in coming, coming weeks. Uh, but what we need to do going forward is we need to fight for senior government officials to be held directly accountable. Uh, and there were already proposals in the last Tinwald, uh, put forward by Julie Edge, the member for Onken, to link pay for senior government officials to performance. And we can build on those immediately so that we can avoid further blowouts in the Liverpool landing stage, if we can avoid further dragging out of the, of the NSC water side, we, and we can address the ongoing uh, budget blowouts with bus venom. Uh, I'll just go around the, the panel um, as a quick, um, just a quick opinion. Do you think the government is serious about uh, tackling climate change on the Isle of Man? That's quite a big question. Um, I think that there are some members of government who are serious about it, but I don't think that the policy at the top um, has reflected a level of seriousness about it. Amanda Walker, do you think the, uh, do you think the voter thinks the government is serious? I don't, I don't think the general public think that the government is serious about it because I think the government's behaviour has shown that they're not really serious about it. It's an awful lot of lip service being paid. John Jockham? It's true. They've, they've failed the people of Douglas and the people of the Isle of Man. They have done nothing for 20 years. They've done nothing about climate change in the past 20 years. But we've known about, as you say, people about, have known about nothing. climate change. We hear about it all the time. For doing nothing yeah. about climate change. OK. Uh, Christine Urquhart? climate change? Do you think this government has done enough? Do you think people think the government's doing enough? Where's all the electrical ports for these cars around the island? We, rebuilding the prom, where's the electrical ports for the electrical cars that they want to ship in? I don't think they're taking it seriously at all. Uh, Peter Gilmore? Yeah, I think it's been thrown together as a yeah. plan uh, for reaction and proactive. Um, great danger that uh, they've got some of it wrong. They're talking about planting 85,000 trees. Well, you can't just plant trees. You've got to think about planting trees in the right place. You, you know, you've got to uh, plant them to protect water, uh, uh, wildlife, and uh, other such things. You can't just. You've got to think this through, and I don't think it's been thought through. Claire Barber. I think there has been some real positive changes in terms of the climate change forum and actually having a proper conversation about climate change. For me, the legislation is almost peripheral because actually you can have as much legislation as you want, but if you don't see fundamental change in actions, we will not see the change that we need to see across our island. So I believe there has been voices within government who have really pushed hard, and I believe I've been one of those, but has there been enough action? Not as yet, but I believe that there will be huge changes, and I'm really delighted to hear it as such a, a positive point around the doorstep of people wanting to see that change, because that's imperative. Uh, Michael Josem, do you think the people, do you think the voter believes that the government gets climate change and knows how much action needs to be taken? I think that's a good word you've used repeatedly there, Andy, but also Claire immediately before, and that's action. Uh, and there's a lot of, lot of hot talk. And so, it's, you know, here we are, we're talking about climate change. 
you know, probably one of the drivers of this is all the hot air let off by politicians. And so that's why Liberal Van is about taking leadership. You know, I rode my bike down here to, to Jack's tonight. Here we are in the centre, one of the easiest places in the Isle of Man to cycle to. Didn't see many other people cycling along. And we've got to take personal leadership. Um, that's why my brochures that many, many voters will have in their hands use 100% recycled paper, because we've got to take personal leadership. The time for talk is over, uh, and now we've got to act and, and move forward. OK, let's talk about affordable housing. Lots of people in Douglas East um, want to buy houses. Um, Peter Gilmore, what do you think the government, what do you think, and have you been hearing about the cost of housing on the Isle of Man? This is a major problem. It's, it's a triple whammy because it's not just the, the cost of housing, it's, that's impacting the people we, that can stay here to work, people who we can bring into work, so it's exacerbating the skills shortage. We need to look at three things together, diversification, every time we ask our youngsters when they leave, and we've lost 40% of our youngsters under 30 every year since 2011. We need to look at all three things, and every time you ask them, they say affordable housing, the lack of diversification in jobs available, and the cost of travel. What do you mean, lack of diversification in jobs? What I mean is they don't, when they go to study in, in university, they can't get the type of job they want. We have two main sectors here, e-gaming and insurance, which is 40% of our economy. Finance, add that, and that's the bulk of our income. If you don't want to work in finance, if you don't want to work in e-gaming or insurance, you won't get a job here. So we've got to think about the needs of young workers and diversifying the economy, moving into the digital economy to create new jobs, which can be in fashion, energy trading, you name it. We've all seen that when we've worked from home. I've known that for years as being an IT engineer. More people have seen now. We can employ people not just here, but around the world. Uh, Claire Barber. Uh, in terms of the affordable housing, there's going to be a number of pieces that have to come together. We've seen within the COVID crisis, the last two years, there's been a huge uh, increase in property prices, which has blocked people from being able to get onto the ladder. But it's also meaning people can't downsize as easily. They're struggling to find availability of smaller smaller homes. So we need to make sure there's an increased availability of homes. We need to make sure we legislate against gazumping. People who've saved up, they put their deposit and their conveyancing fees together, and at the last minute they're having that money wiped from underneath them. Um, and they're back to not just square one, they're back to negative two. We need to, we need to move away from that. We need to make sure we have availability of social housing and we need to make sure that we're, making, we're, we're, we're regulating landlords um, and the landlord registration bill will go away towards that to make sure the people are renting are in a good quality accommodation. But if the landlord's bill doesn't include public sector landlords... It surely can't be a landlord's, can't be a landlord's legislation. So I supported bringing the uh, public sector landlords into it. I believe everyone should be uh, on the same playing field. If we have a standard of living that's appropriate for private sector, that should be the same standard you should expect in the public sector. Um, unfortunately, that wasn't accepted. The DOI feel they're going to bring a separate piece of legislation. There's going to need to be a focus on getting that right. Why we couldn't bring it in together, I'm still not clear on. But unfortunately, we were unsuccessful in trying to make that move. Christine Urquhart. I'm going to pick up on that, that social housing should absolutely be in with that landlord's bill. And there's where your lack of transparency and accountability comes from. It's shining bright just from that one bill alone. I believe, I, 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 I've got a 26-year-old son who owned his own property two years ago, now he can't get on the property ladder because prices have skyrocketed during COVID and people come in here to live to escape COVID. There needs to be more regulation with how that's happening, more regulation and taxes on the amount of properties that people own and what they're allowed to own. And more importantly, the, the houses that are being built 
we've we've got people in residential care who could actually live on their own if they had the property that was that, that was built for them. Okay, uh, Joni Farragher, do you think the government should get involved in the property market, make sure younger people buy property? Absolutely. So this has uh, been a huge issue on the doorstep. We need quality, affordable homes so that uh, for rent and for purchase, so that we can attract young people and essential workers back to the island. Um, so we need a combination of support for buyers, incentivising developers, and constructing more social housing. So some some of the issues that I would include some some um, sorry, I keep hearing that echo. Some. Um, Solutions I would bring in would be good development of brownfield sites, especially in Douglas. Tangible support for first-time buyers, as you mentioned. I also think that we need to have support for people to downsize. I've heard that a lot on the doorstep. People want to downsize. We've got an under-occupation issue. They want to move into a small property, but they can't because of the cost involved and because of the lack of suitable property. Um, restricting or dis disincentivizing multiple uh, property ownership by taxing second and third properties. So all of these need to be included in a national housing strategy. Amanda Walker. I think it's an incredibly complex issue. I don't think there was ever a mythical time when it was very easy to buy a house. Um, so I think affordable housing is a very real issue. I also think that there are an awful lot of our young people who, when they are seeking jobs elsewhere, will find housing even more expensive than it is on the Isle of Man. Um, I think one of the things that we could do is actually have a proper Manx right to buy scheme, because I think there's an awful lot of social housing that's blocked by people who've been there for a considerable length of time and are now at an economic point where they don't actually need social housing so I'd ring fence it I would allow them to buy not with the massive discounts that are offered in the UK but with an appropriate and proportionate discount and then I would have the money ring fenced so that we could build more social housing because so I think that you'd important. advocate right to buy in social housing I would advocate the right to buy in social housing ring fencing the money coming in I wouldn't give the massive discounts that were brought in under the Thatcher right to buy I think we would design our own right to buy scheme which then would create a reservoir of social housing which would alleviate a lot of problems and much of that social housing could be allocated to key workers as well. So I think there's a huge issue with some of the sectors that we have in the economy that overinflate wages and that because of those overinflated wages it's fueled that the housing inflation. And I also think there's an issue with investment and we have an awful lot of finance businesses that are based on investment. Uh, so we can't restrict people being allowed to buy housing here because it's a major thing that insurance companies will invest in because they're going to move away from office space because more and more people are working from home. I also think what we've got to do with housing is make it a big priority with the climate emergency and we've got to support people retrofitting. I do not think that means testing, uh, making houses more environmentally friendly is the way to go. I think the audit needs to be done and then we should be retrofitting on the basis of the houses that are causing the most environmental damage. And I certainly think a lot of the older properties, we need to look at the planning laws and we need to make sure that retrofitting can be done and doesn't get stopped because of Okay. Aesthetics. John Jockin. Well, however, there's two main things in the housing market for affordable housing. One is the and the second thing is the planning. Planning, we've just got a big plan in development down in Palace There's not a single first-time buyer's house. Not a single first-time buyer's house. The government's granted this scheme, and they've just pushed up 30% of prices off them as well. These schemes go when we need affordable housing. This was zoned for developed for the residential land, so some of it should be zoned for, for uh, first-time buyers. There's an application gone in last week for 40 first-time buyers' houses up in the top of Johnny uh, Watson's Lane. I hope the government back it because they're going to build them first before they build the other houses. 
They're the sort of schemes that we want first. And before builders get planning permission, they should be told to build the affordable houses first, then sell the profitable so ones. So you say affordable houses first? Yes, before they get the license. As, as, as a condition of getting yes. the, the planning? And so do you think this, uh, the government acted against the we interest of... We don't need half million pound houses. We need affordable houses for our children to grow up in. Okay. And they'll be gone, and they won't come back. Okay. Uh, that's what I wanted to talk about, and that is uh, quite a few of the candidates have talked about the falling birth rate on the Isle of Man and population on the Isle of Man. Christine Urquhart. Can I just um, I must apologise. I'm really struggling to hear you, Andy. We're talking about the falling birth rate on the Isle of Man and also uh, people coming back to the Isle of Man, uh, people at university coming back to the Isle of Man, making the Isle of Man an attractive place to come back to for young students. What would I do to make it attractive? Diversify, like Peter said earlier, you need to diversify the employment and the educa and education to give people something to come back to, the affordable housing. We've all just sat and, and spoke about that. Birth rate dropping, people want to take control of their lives more now. That's not the leave school, get work, get married, have got home, have kids. That, that doesn't exist anymore. We live in a modern age. People are having children later in life now, but to be able to bring these people here, we need to have our infrastructure correct, and it's not correct. Our own health system can't even support ourselves. We've got five-year waiting lists uh, uh, in healthcare, two-year waiting lists in mental health. If our infrastructure can't support us, how is this going to support anybody else? Uh, Peter Gilmore, the government's stated ambition is to increase the population of the Isle of Man, to increase the economically active population of the Isle of Man. Do you think that's, uh, that's possible? Do you think we can do it? It's not something I'd like to see, actually. I'd like to see... Uh, a lot more upskilling on the Isle of Man. I'd like to see us uh, being a little bit more careful who we allow to come here. But at the moment, I think we're financially cleansing our young people off the island. We're not giving those that have left the opportunity to come back because we haven't got done diversification. So we need to be careful here that we're not creating a gated community for old people and driving all our youngsters away. The number of people I've spoken to on the doorstep, especially mothers, some are nearly in tears. They're basically saying, I'll not see my son or daughter again, because once they've gone to university, they can't afford to come back here. So what sort of mechanism do you think the government could put in place to make sure that doesn't happen? I think what we need to do is invest in funds that, um, when it, say for instance, when a, somebody's born on the Isle of Man, that some money is ring-fenced for them. When they go away, do their education, they can access that money when they come back. So that kind of thing. We need to really talk this through to uh, come work out how we'll get our own young people back here. Michael Joseph. Yeah, look, I think that too much discussion of the, of the Manx migration system uh, focuses purely on people who are new to the Isle of Man. Um, and instead, we do have that ready-made group of people who already have a love for our island, uh, and that is the young people who have moved away. Uh, and, and many of them have, have left uh, in search of dynamic and rewarding careers, like your own family, Andy. And, uh, and, and in that sense, since working careers pull many people um, away on the Isle of Man, that's got to be the first thing that we focus on, uh, allowing dynamic and exciting industries to, to thrive here on the Isle of Man um, and to also ease the squeeze on the cost of living. Uh, and that's why uh, you know, our policy to, on, on, the, on housing is about two parts. First of all, building more housing, but also carefully scrutinising people who, from abroad uh, who want to use the Manx housing market as a, as a speculative financial instrument rather than a place to live. John Jockin. You have to just increase the employment that we've got. The Isle of Man is renowned for being whichever way you throw us, we'll stand. I mean, 10, 15 years ago, there was a bank on every corner. We've fallen over banks. You know, they've gone now. 
you know, and, and after that we've had uh, the e-gaming and the insurance are going to be the major ones. What is good about the Isle of Man and what's creative about the Isle of Man, we're adaptable and we can change quickly for the next thing that's coming along. You know, you know, when we were, we were children, it was all boarding houses along here, it was all tourism, that's all gone now. We can still have bespoke tourism back, we can work on that again, but whatever the next industry that comes along, we'll be ready for it. Amanda Walker. I think one of the things that um, will attract more people back here is the, the lifestyle here and I think certainly my eldest daughter went off to university, was never ever going to come back to the Isle of Man. She came to do a gap year before she went to do her masters in Australia and she's been here ever since and I have two grandchildren so who live here and um, my middle daughter came back for a year to work after she went to university so I think there are opportunities here. I think one of the most important things is to actually support and develop our creative industries here because I think that, and the night time economy because I think both of those things make it an attractive place to live and work with things to do for young people and attractive things for them to do and um, I think it's absolutely ridiculous that we've got the so-called arts sector down at the end of the prom where they close down the sale gallery and they're going to turn it into yet another restaurant so the arts sector basically consists of the gaiety theatre complex um, we've, we've lost a gallery there's a lot of people who are very interested in art particularly younger people things like digital art and um, Peter mentioned the fashion industry all of those things we have huge talented people here. UCM produces an awful lot of people who go to top quality universities, places like the London School of Fashion. Those people, there's no reason why people like Thea Bragazzi couldn't be based on the island and do her international Okay, and Jenny Farragher. Yeah, well, first of all, I think this is absolutely tied up with affordability issues, so like the housing issue that we were talking about earlier. But it isn't just that. It's about quality of life as well. And I think that we, if we put in strong social policies and strong family policies, we will be attracting young people back here to actually have their families. So universal daycare, for example, um, puts more people into the workforce, means more taxes are paid, that stimulates our economy that way. But it also supports families, and it also puts those strong social values in there. Um, improved access to lifelong education means that people can upgrade their skills, grow more productive and resilient to economic change. Again, you're stimulating the economy, but you're also putting those strong social um, policies in there that will actually improve lives. So I think the strong set of policies that I have in my manifesto will actually impact upon the quality of life over here as well. Okay, thank you. Now, we're talking in Douglas East tonight to Claire Barber, Joni Farragher, Peter Gilmore, Michael Josem, John Jockin, Christine Urquhart and Amanda Walker. They are the candidates who are in place for Thursday, September 23rd for the general election. We've heard them. Now let's go to the audience and we've got some questions. Well, Andy, we do have a section on the Manx Radio election website called I Wish You'd Ask. And lots of people have sent through questions uh, and we're going to take some of those now. So this is a question from Michael who says, please can you ask the candidates what they feel can be done about the departments of government that have become bloated with management structures and unyielding to the wishes of not only the public, but also the MHKs who are supposed to head them. So, uh, Christine, what can be done to... That's right up my street. Uh, <laughs> sorry for the terminology. I want to call middle management. Middle management is a nightmare. It's costing us too much money. We've seen the report come out last week. 42% of gross expenditure is on salary, and a lot of that is management. It, it, needs, it needs... I want to see a full audit across government. Claire Barber. To curb that. I mean, I, it's an area that I've been frustrated with, having been uh, in, in the House of Peace for the last five years. Um, we, we see blockages appearing to happen where there is an excessive level of uh, structures. And I give an example where there was an opportunity to bring a... Uh, uh, 
a, a number of other religions to come into the hospital and people of no religion, the humanists, to come in and offer um, services to people when they were bereaved. Um, and we went through about seven different management tiers uh, to actually try and get an outcome on something that was simply adding a few more phone numbers to a leaflet. Um, that, for me, highlighted the, the challenges we have. It, we have to reduce that, and that has to be across all governments. But we also need to remove the silo working. If we can start to see the zero-based budgeting, but working on a topic rather than on uh, structured departments, I think we will start to see the change that has to happen. OK, Michael Joseph. The big problem that we have here with our government is there's no accountability and no skin in the game. So that means that when budgets go over budget, uh, there is no accountability for the leadership. And so, for example, Bus Fannin, for the last three years running, has had significant uh, budget blowouts of over hun uh, many hundreds of thousands of pounds over budget, uh, and, and no one has been held accountable. So we've got to start uh, putting some skin in the game from the leaders. Uh, the, the budget blowout from Bus Vannon last year during the pandemic, when, when many buses were operating a reduced service, would be enough money to pay to end holiday hunger on the Isle of Man and to pay food vouchers for, for the families who are receiving free school meals on the holidays. And that's a sort of reform, to have skin in the game so that senior government officials are held directable and they, they feel the pain, because many of the taxpayers already are. Okay, let's go to COVID-19 uh, and a question in now that just says, if you'd been uh, Chief Minister during the COVID crisis, what would you have done differently? Joni Farragher. Uh, well, the first thing I absolutely would have done was um, initiate a scientific team in order to take the responses from those. And I would have closely followed the science. I, 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 that, that is exactly what I would have done. Okay. I would have very closely followed the science. Amanda Walker. Um, I, I would also have been science-led, but there are two key things I would have done very differently. Number one, I would not have opened the borders before the UK relaxation occurred. I think that was a serious error of judgment. And number two, I would have had the teachers vaccinated. I worked in social care and I was double vaccinated by mid-February. I was working with one child at a time. My colleagues in education were working with 30 children in primary schools, very often 30 children whose noses they had to wipe and they hadn't been vaccinated at all. OK, John Jockin. Well, I think they did a remarkably good job of COVID myself. I think perhaps the only bit that they got possibly wrong was uh, the bit after Christmas where we had the students come back and the little steam packet uh, uh, fiasco, but we had the little bit of steam packet work. But I think remarkably, compared to the rest of the UK, I think they did remarkably well and should be praised for what they did. Michael Josem. I think it's all very well for candidates here to be Harry Hindsight and to retrospectively say what they would have done. And so we've got to, I think, look at what we what we said and what candidates said at the time. And so in February 2020, uh, you know, I, I disagreed very strongly with the government's policy of only quarantining people who, who, who had symptoms returning from affected areas. Um, and unfortunately, it seems that's subsequently how the, how the disease was in. in. In November and in December last year, I called for scientific uh, investigation and to prioritise the vaccination of, of people who are more likely to contract COVID. Uh, unfortunately, the government uh, refused to listen to the science, so that's really disappointing. But I think what we've got to do um, is really look at what people said and did at the time. OK, um, Christine Urquhart. I would have listened. I would have listened to what people were saying around me. I would have paid attention to everybody's concerns. I would have listened to the, the doctors. Um, what happened between New Year and February and, 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 and the, the, the schools catching it and they still wouldn't close us down. Um, I think there was a lot of ignorance and a lot of arrogance and, and I, w I wouldn't have been that person. Okay, Peter Gilmore. Yeah, I think a lot of people wouldn't like to attack the government on it, but they could have done things better, I think, if it, if it was me. Um, 
I think the first major problem was not listening to the doctorate in November, when she was saying we've got 2,000 people coming to the island in December, and she advised that they got checked, that tested again before release. That led to a large wave in January. Then we were assured that the key workers in the steam packet were being tested, government thought they were, and that ended up with the next wave. And then a lot of people thought, don't open the borders until the schools close, or bring the schools close date forward. They didn't. We ended up with another wave. And the schools go back this week. I think they haven't done enough to uh, give information to the teachers. So I'm expecting a small wave over the next two weeks because of that. And uh, Claire Barber. There's been areas where I have spoken out very strongly, in fact, um, in terms of my frustrations with the handling of COVID. Um, on, on the broader piece, I think that there has been some really positive action. I've been, I've, I've been comfortable with some of the decisions. One of the biggest uh, concerns I had was the late closure of the borders um, and uh, also the fact that we left people out of the island and we really made it impossible for them to come home. People who were stranded in the likes of New Zealand, people who had no money left, they had no ability to earn, they had no ability to get sick pay, they couldn't afford accommodation or food, but they couldn't get back to the UK, because. but until they got to the UK, they couldn't get in the ballot to come back to the island. They were absolutely left in an impossible situation. And some of the emails I had during that time were absolutely harrowing. And they, they, they have stuck with me and, we really should have listened. Okay. Claire Barber's service during the pandemic is really impressive. Um, Donning the PPA gear and she deserves to be congratulated for that as well. Okay. Um, uh, just a few notes in. There are 900 new houses allocated in the Eastern Plan, of which 225 will hopefully be allocated to first-time buyers. They say, we've done housing so far. I want to come on to another question I had, and that is regarding antisocial behaviour uh, around Douglas and what can be done to that. So let's broaden that out to law and order, John Jockin. John Jockin and law and order, yeah. I mean, uh, they have to be much more strict in the police. I see the police, I see them working on Saturday night. Some of the young people have got no respect for the police whatsoever, and I'm afraid um, respect is earned and not living, uh, given, so you have to go out and earn your respect, the police. They have to go out and enforce the law. I mean, is antisocial behaviour getting worse around Douglas? Yes. I've driven a taxi for my brother a couple of Saturday nights, and it's pretty horrendous. I had no idea it was that bad in Douglas. So what should the, the police be doing? Well, they need to make their presence much more, more strong. They need to put, put, put some rules down. They need to uh, come up with a much stronger force. Joni Farragher. With more bobbies on the beat, just generally across the island, but I actually think that more of a carrot and stick approach is needed rather than just being all stick. We have lost quite a lot of our youth facilities across Douglas. There aren't any areas that are dedicated for teenagers whatsoever. We used to have um, youth facilities like the machine across Douglas, but that's gone. Um, we really do need to be putting in things for these young people. They can't use parks, they're not allowed to. They don't have the money to use the facilities that are aimed at adults. So we actually do need to be putting in facilities for them so that we, so that we can actually give them something uh, valuable and, and productive to do with their time. Amanda Walker. Um, I think there's, there is an issue with antisocial behaviour, but I think it's symptomatic of the breakdown with our youth generally. And I think that a big part of that is the cultural um, landscape that they live in. I, and I think we have very much lost the war on drugs. I think it's become a thing that is seen as socially acceptable. And I think because there's been underfunding of youth services and cuts in youth services, 
proper positive things for them to be doing don't occur and don't attract young people. Um, so I think we've actually got to have a major look at the way we treat our young people. I think an awful lot of the issue with drugs is young people self-medicating because they can't get access to the mental health services that they need and then we criminalise them. And we've also got an issue with um, people off island seeing the Isle of Man as a honeypot for them to bring their drugs over to, particularly during the COVID crisis because they saw it as a very lucrative market and um, we've got a major problem with that. More police being thrown at it won't necessarily solve it. Uh, Claire Barber. something I've absolutely supported a million home affairs but there is more to do um, I don't want to see us though looking to criminalize our young people and our and those people who may commit antisocial behavior I'd like to see far more of what the police do do actually which is working with them educating um, and encouraging but looking at the provision that is missing to make sure that those young people have somewhere to go and an interesting thing someone told me just the other week actually a 17 year old in Douglas East um, who couldn't go out with her young friends to most restaurants in Douglas wouldn't let them come without an adult with them because of licensing, despite the fact they weren't drinking. And actually, if you can't go to those places where you want to sit and have a coffee or have a pizza with your friends, where do you go? And the reality is we all want to go somewhere that isn't our parents' home. I've been there, you know, and I'm sure my kids will be there at some point. Um, and I want to know that there is somewhere for them to go and but be is, able to just spend public time with order in Is public order, is antisocial behaviour getting worse in Douglas? So I think that there has been antisocial behaviour in Douglas. I think Onken has also had quite uh, well well publicised issues with antisocial behaviour. Um, but where there are groups of young people who gather together, it can be intimidating, even if they're not actually committing offences. But we've seen windows smashed on the Villa Marina. There have been incidences that I've spoken directly with the police around. And there are people who live in certain areas around the centre who have felt incredibly scared because they've had their, their rear staircases rattled, people banging at the windows. You know, that's incredibly intimidating for someone my age, let alone someone who may be in their 60s, 70s, even their 80s, um, and feeling very much under threat. Michael Josem. I'm a firm believer that prevention is better than cure, and that by the time we get to policing these things, it's, that's too late. And so what we really need to do is we need to get back into a mindset where our children are producing rather than consuming and producing in many different ways. Uh, the most obvious ways uh, is through art, through part-time work, uh, through uh, encouraging young people to get involved in sport. That's why I get up at 9am every, every, every Sunday morning to referee junior netball. Uh, not because I particularly like getting up at 9am on a Sunday morning, but it's really important for us as community leaders to, to, to do the hard work. Uh, you know, whether it be with hockey or football or gymnastics or whatever, those sort of endeavours are really important to build a healthy culture of production. And, and that isn't just sport, but it's also work, it's art, it's uh, in faith and other interest groups. Okay, Peter Gilmore. Um, I'd agree a lot. I agree with Claire, what Claire said. I've heard a lot of the same on the doorstep. The vast majority of our youngsters, though, are very well behaved. It's usually just a minority, and it's the usual suspects. And it's not just the usual suspects, it's the usual suspects' parents. So I think sometimes the police need to do a little bit more talking about to those guys. But also this antisocial behaviour sometimes is a sign of something else going wrong. So, you know, we need to join this up with our uh, mental health provision as well, just to make sure that we're, put, we're identifying youngsters with problems. Okay. I, yeah, again, I agree with Claire. You know, our children turn 18 and then all of a sudden they're allowed to go out drinking and dancing and nobody's really educated them because they've always been with their parents. They should be allowed into these premises from the age of 16 if they're not drinking alcohol to, to educate themselves about and make, make themselves aware of how people behave.
Okay, uh, mental health now. We've had some questions in regarding the mental health services and long waiting lists for mental health on the Isle of Man. Joni Farragher. Uh, mental health, I would say, is in crisis right now, which is shown by our suicide rates, and we do use suicide rates um, as the tracker, the key tracker of our mental I mean, health crisis policy. is a big word. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I do, I do work in this area, and it is in crisis. As you, as you mentioned, waiting lists are astronomical. They, they, people are already in crisis when they contact the mental health service, and then they're told that they have to wait another 18 months, two years sometimes, especially for children and adolescent mental health services. Um, so how do, we, how do we address that? Firstly, global research indicates to us that the key feature of a successful mental health service is funding. So we do actually face some fundamental questions about how we view mental health. Um, it has never been seen as as important as physical health. And in my opinion, that needs to change. Um, so let's just say that we have the funding in place. Um, we will then have a team of fully trained professionals who actually work out in the community. At the moment we work the inverse way around where people who are not feeling uh, mentally in, in a good place have to actually attend institutions or um, buildings that might be intimidating, have to access public, um, um, sorry, public um, transport that might be overwhelming for them to actually navigate. So we need to invert that situation so we have community-based uh, mental health and then we also need an affiliated prevention and postvention service for suicide. Suicide is actually um, seen as being contagious, so therefore we need to identify the individuals around somebody who has died by suicide, identify how they're, how they're vulnerable and put the appropriate support in place. Okay, we know Claire, how to do that. Claire Barber. Mental health in the same way we have talking about physical health. We need to understand that we all have mental health needs and we all have times when we're lower and we have times when we're feeling more comfortable with ourselves. Um, but we need to be able to talk about that and a big piece for me is around talking. But we also have a, a longer term piece because there are people where we have, we've not managed to get them when they're at the lower level one, level two stages of being supported with mental health. Um, and they do now have more complex needs within mental health and we need to make sure that that is something that is provided for. Um, we have, we've, we've sorted out contracts now with the UK to make sure that we have beds available for people. That was something that before was done on an ad hoc basis and meant there was long waiting lists. But we need to make sure we're addressing this at every level and we need to really focus on the child and adolescent mental health needs where the waiting lists are far too long. Uh, but you've been in, uh, in the uh, health service for a long time now. Has this suddenly exploded or is it just a matter of people becoming more aware of it? I think there has been an element of people becoming more aware, but we have seen the waiting lists increasingly grow. We also see that mental health services end up picking up other uh, complex needs. Um, and as uh, Christine talked about before, there are people where there's a big crossover where they may have mental health needs, there's also maybe social care needs, and then there may be a criminality of you know, that's also resulted. We need to be able to look at holistic care for people, but I'd actually like to see mental health and physical health and life support as part of the structure of our basic core curriculum and our public, uh, you know, in our PSHE lessons in school. I think, I think most of us feel the same about that, uh, the issue of mental health. Um, what, I, what I'd like to add is uh, I'm glad to see that Manx Care are starting to get a grip of it. They've started to uh, advertise. Well, this isn't just an Isle of Man problem. This is a, an Isle of Man, UK, America, various parts of the world problem. So this problem has been building up for, for several years. So my main concern is that we join up the systems so that our mental health, health care professionals work in a joined up way.
We are a we are a um, an affluent island. Do you think it's something we should be able to solve? Well, one of the major problems is recruitment. We're going to have a lot of difficulty. The UK are trying to recruit lots of mental health professionals and counsellors, etc. We're going to find that very difficult. It's quite a tough, stressful job to do. So, um, you know, obviously we need to hope that we can get the people. But I also think maybe we need to maybe train a lot more local junior counsellors. I mean, I spent time on some, with the Samaritans years ago. You know, we've had a bit of a, char uh, a tragedy in our family, extended family um, with this lately. But I, I think making sure the systems are joined up, that's what's needed. Okay, Christine, okay. Wow. Um, mental health, Manx solutions for Manx problems, isn't that what our Chief Minister kept saying throughout COVID? So we can talk about the global issues, we can talk about the UK issues, but we need to concentrate on the Manx issues. I want to see mental health workers in every GP surgery take the pressure off the GPs to cut down referral times, to cut down waiting lists. Um, we need to stop being ignorant. There's not, I don't know a person who gets to the age of 40 who hasn't suffered some kind of trauma. We need to stop ignoring that fact. We need to, like Claire said, again, go in, we need to constantly put more into children's mental health because so much trauma happens there. And we, we get to the crux of that and help the children. We won't have to deal with the adverse childhood effects, which is the ACEs as they get older, which is what is costing our health system so much money now. And do you think it's something we should, the government should be putting more money into? Absolutely, 100%. We need a, a, a um, rehabilitation centre. Manan and Court's fabulous, but that's for acute. What about those who work, go from an acute stage and there's, there's nowhere in between before they get put back into the community? We need, we need a, um, a rehabilitation centre as a step down and for those who want to self-refer but are not as acute for Manan and Court. And I think that needs the government's been, I wouldn't say ignoring it, um, or, or pushing this issue aside. The time's come now that it no longer gets pushed aside. Okay, I just want a quick 10-second uh, answer from everybody. Then we're going to go to the minute summing up, and it concerns Douglas. And I want you to tell me whether you think Douglas is attractive as a town. Joni Farragher. Um, it's not as attractive at the moment as it used to be. It, it needs to it needs to up its game. We do need to up our game. It can be. It's got so much potential. Uh, John Jockin. It's a will for uh, business to come back into the town centre. And when the promenade's finished, I think it's going to be the gateway to the Isle of Man. OK, Michael Joseph. It's, at the moment, it's physically unattractive. And when we have the Ward Street and Parade Street and Fort Street and Regent Street and North Key and South Key, it looks like a bombsite. But I think it is uh, emotionally and intellectually attractive in that there's a really powerful community and sense of community now in Douglas, and we can build on that. Claire Barber. I think we uh, we all see the Harris Benson for the last two, three years, that has been our, our vision of Douglas. Um, but actually, we've got some beautiful places around the quayside, Victoria Street, where we really had a focus, actually, on bringing uh, community okay. into Douglas. Okay. And that's absolutely what we should focus on. Peter Gilmore. Yeah. In a lot of ways, Douglas hasn't changed since I got the boat to go into the Air Force four years ago, but um, there are subtle changes happening. Is it attractive? Not enough. OK, Christine Urquhart. I'm going to apologise again. I cannot hear you, Andy. Is Douglas attractive as a place? It does is, it look, as a capital. Does it look nice? It doesn't look nice. No, you come in. Have you seen the view from the boat? Okay. <laughs> Amanda Walker. 
And Douglas currently has multiple disgraces and it needs to really get sorted out and, and I think we need people who are going to be positive and proactive and encourage small startups, small businesses, which is what the Manx Spirit has all been about. Okay, each candidate will now have one minute to tell you why they should be an MHK for Douglas East. First of all, Amanda, uh, uh, Christine Urquhart. Why should I be an MHK? Because I will offer you the transparency that you seek. I will be honest. I will be your questions, your queries in there. I am not self-serving. I've got no self-interest. My interest is in you. Um, so, yeah, that's why you need to vote for me, because you will get an honest, as honest as politician. OK, that was very quick. You've got one minute, Peter Gilmore. Use all the 60 seconds. Um, yeah, my background, nine years in the Air Force. I consider myself a person of integrity and honesty. Um, I'm very experienced in business, finance and technology. I think the key to growth in the Isle of Man, we need to be as clever as we were in the 80s now to start designing a green economy and a digital economy and move lots of jobs into that. I think we need to prioritise the needs of young workers in terms of housing, uh, diversifications in skills, and work full-time. Working full-time in the digital economy, I'm a candidate that knows how to do that. OK, uh, Claire Barber, you have 60 seconds to tell your constituents why you should be the MHK for Douglas East. Thank you, Andy. So, you know, I see myself uh, first and foremost as a, a mum, a wife, a nurse and a Douglas resident and I see that those things are what empowers me to be able to accurately and positively represent the people of Douglas East over the last five years. I believe I'm someone who, I hope my record speaks for myself, I've had uh, you know, some really heartwarming feedback both on the doorstep by email and in letters that make me realise why it's so important we have representatives who listen, who understand, who take the time to really almost walk that journey with the people who are struggling because when you're at those darkest and most difficult times you need someone who'll take that burden with you but then to empower and to really try and uh, achieve the change that we all want to see. So I hope I might get your support for another five years to serve as MHK for Douglas East. Thank you. Okay, and uh, Michael Josum, you have one minute to tell uh, the uh, constituents why you should be an MHK for Douglas East. Thanks, Andy. Uh, Michael Josum deserves your vote because uh, our community plan uh, is based on several core principles. First of all, imp improving government services by holding senior government officials accountable, easing the squeeze on the cost of living, especially by fixing our housing crisis and recovering from COVID-19 by addressing the health and economic challenges caused by lockdowns. I'd encourage everyone to, to have a look at the website online at michaeljosum.com for more details on these policies. More than the policies, however, what I think is really important is that many people talk a lot. Um, but what we really need is action now. And so that's why while other people talk about the climate emergency, I ride my bike around town to reduce the strain on parking and the environment. While other people talk about the mental health crisis, I took the training as a mental health first aider to ensure that there is support for members of our community. When people talk about poverty, I helped out by volunteering for the Isle of Man Food Bank to ensure that people in need have support when they need it. And uh, John Jockin, you have one minute to tell the constituents why you should be an MHK for Douglas East. Uh, thank you, Andy. Uh, I think... Uh, oh, the clock stopped, anyway. <laughs> I think uh, what we're going to need in the next government certainly is uh, experienced politicians. 
We're going to have a, we've got four left already from this parliament. We're probably going to get another two or three on top of that. So you're definitely going to need experienced politicians. I've been a politician for over nine years. I've been a politician, so I'm well experienced. I'm well experienced in uh, East Douglas. I've lived here for 30 years. So I'd like to use that experience to represent the people of East Douglas. But most of all, I'm, I'm a committed politician. I'm more of a pragmatic politician. I am not going to be a politician that sits on the back bench criticising government. I want to join government. I want to be a part of government. I want to build something in government. I want to build something for the Isle of Man. If they're going to put me in a department, I want to build a bridge. I want to build a school. I want to make this island a better place to live in. And that's why you should vote for John Jockey. OK, and uh, Amanda Walker, you have one minute to talk to the constituents. Right, the, the reason why I'm standing is because I've lived in Douglas East for over 20 years. I'm a local person. I walk the streets every single day with my little dog, Nico. I'm an extremely approachable and positive person. I've got a degree in political science. And I have got 36 years experience of teaching. I've worked with young people extensively. I have a real desire to make a difference and to make a change. And I think that the Isle of Man is an absolutely fantastic place to live. I have absolutely no intention of leaving the island. However, I do find it a very expensive place to live and I would like to do things to improve things for ordinary working families. I also think that we've, got a, we've had a government previous administration that adopted a very adversarial approach towards our teaching profession and I think that's one of the things that I could really help to improve because I, I have got 36 years teaching experience. I think there are major problems with the health service that need to be addressed. I'm hoping that Manx Care will go a long way to do that. One of the main reasons why I think you should vote for me is because I'm actually a Douglas East resident. Okay, and finally, Joni Farragher, uh, standing for uh, uh, Max Labour, of course. That's right, yeah. Okay, you have one minute. Thank you. Um, so all of the things that we've been talking about tonight, about us and our kids' futures, I understand that. I've experienced that. I understand the kinds of issues you want to hear us talking about. You want to hear whether or not your kids will ever own a home, and that's a big part of my agenda. You want to hear how the financial squeeze on you can be reduced. So for many people, their income might not have changed, but they'll definitely have noticed that the cost of living is in has increased. We want our kids to have a great education. As I've mentioned, education is a key to solving inequality. It's a big priority for me. We want to hear how we can address the climate crisis without it being too costly for us. And we want to understand how it will actually help us and make our lives better. My core ethos is that strong social policies make strong families living wages, affordable housing, strong employment rights, economic opportunity mean that families are able to thrive. Please take this opportunity to make it clear that we want things done differently and we want a fresh approach. Okay, thank you. I must say, Joni Farragher is standing on behalf of Manx Labour and Michael Josem standing on behalf of Liberal Vanin. All the other candidates that you heard tonight are standing as independents. Now, um, Tonight you've heard the candidates. If you live in Douglas East, this is not the final word. Of course, you can go to maxradio.com, you can find the details of all the candidates, and I would urge you to speak to them, to chat to them, and if they come knocking on your door, to invite them in for a cup of tea and talk to them. Uh, they're here to listen to you. Um, uh, this, by the way, the Max Radio candidate debates are just a small part of our election coverage. We've got lots of, uh, if you go to manxradio.com there's information for voters. Uh, we've got translations in Manx, Russian, German, Portuguese, Ukrainian, Chinese, Afrikaans, Greek, Hungarian and Polish. There are videos from all the candidates. There are also podcasts from all the candidates. Uh, 20 minutes sometimes as well. Uh, there are coronavirus contingency plans and there's a general election um, calendar as well. So you can see who's standing, you can see what they stand for, and you can see when you can vote. Now, 
Tonight we've been at Jack's uh, uh, Bar and Smoke Ash, you probably heard that, in Douglas, the old Granville Hotel on Douglas Promenade. Tomorrow night we'll be at UCM, Homefield Road can, uh, cam, uh, Campus for Douglas North, and then on Wednesday we'll be at the Pinewood in Paul Rose for Douglas South. On Thursday at the Shaw Hotel in Laxey for the constituency of Garth, and then a week on uh, Friday we'll be at... Um, for Glen Faber and Peel at Peel Golf Club. Well, I want to thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for your attention tonight. Thank you very much for being with us. And thanks to everyone here at Jack's. Uh, I want to thank uh, Andy Gibbs for all his help for putting us up at Jack's tonight. Thanks to the big team behind us all. Thanks to Beth Espy and to uh, Matty Cunningham and to Alex Brindley and to uh, Andrew Beasley as well. I'm Andy Wint. And tonight, we've been at Jack's Bar and Steakhouse, ladies and gentlemen.